the kids sort of keep up and pace with us, we're sort of taking two or three weeks off um, after we do a question so that they can learn the question well. And in that time, we're focusing just on prayer here on Wednesday evening. So that's why the Wednesday evening study will be a little bit more um, sporadic on the, uh, on the live stream. So if you're watching this, you're watching at home, that hopefully explains for you what we're doing. So uh, let's quickly go through and, and review what we've looked at so far, and then we're going to get into question five. So the first question is, what is the Bible? And our answer is the Bible is the only inspired, <coughs> excuse me, written word of God above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority. And we're going to specifically look at the importance of, what, of that, that word only. It is the only inspired word of God, the only place that we can go for no knowledge of him. And we're going to discuss that um, a little bit uh, later as we look at question five. And of course, the verse that goes along with this is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so it's important for us to keep the distinction that when we come to God's word, it is his word. It is not man's word. When we read the word of God, we are hearing his revelation, his thoughts, not man's thoughts. Um, and again, this, is, this first question is really going to coincide very well with what we're going to look at with the, with the fifth question. The second question is, well then, how can we know that the Bible really is the true word of God? How, how can we have confidence in the Bible that it is God's word? And the answer is that confidence, while there may be um, certain things uh, from history, there may be uh, what we call external evidences that point to the veracity and the truthfulness that it's God's word. Ultimately, the only reason anyone is convict, convinced of the truthfulness of God's word is because of who? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God helps us know that the Bible is true and that it is the word of God. And this is what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And this, I think, also helps us to set expectations that the world is not going to accept what the Bible says. We shouldn't be surprised by that because the world has its own spirit and the spirit of the world is not the spirit of God. So then, so if we understand what God's word is, we understand how we know that it's God's word, well, how did he give us the Bible? And while we say it is not the words of men, Yet God chose to use men to provide the word for us. And so God inspired holy men, and I meant to fix that a while ago and forgot to, holy men, oh right, it's to write down his words exactly as he wanted. And you know what, I don't even think Spellcheck pulled that up there. So um, anyways, God's word he chose to use, or he chose to give us his word through human authors. And, of course, we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, even though he uses human authors, the impetus, the desire, the, the origination of the word of God, does it come from within men? The answer is no. It was not given by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there becomes a question then. All right, God, God's word tells us who he is. Uh, God's word, we understand it by his spirit. God uh, provides the, um, the, 
the word through men. But is it possible then that in that, that transaction or in his working through men, is it possible that errors or mistakes crept into the word? And so question four is, does the Bible teach any errors or lies? And the answer we have from that is no. God's word is true and without error because, and we, we ground this in, I think, the strongest argument for this. Does God ever tell a lie? In fact, is it possible for God to tell a lie? No. Um, that's one thing we, we often say, there, we often talk about God and his infinity, and we think, well, there's nothing that God can't do. That's not true. God cannot tell a lie. In other words, he can't go against his own character and nature. And so if we begin to accept the, the possibility for there to be error in God's word, then we begin to accept the possibility for there to be error in God. And it sets us up to be the judge or, or the determiner of truth, and we stand over God. But that's not the way God's word is intended to work. God's word, being perfectly given by God through human instruments, is fully without error so that we stand under the authority of God's word. And that's, that's really what happens when we take away inerrancy. We begin to take away the very authority that God's word has. If there are errors in it, if there are mistakes, then why should I listen to it? Why should it have any sway or hold over my life? We looked at this in Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum, or every one of your words, is truth. Or the sum of your word, all of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So, those are the first four questions we had up until this point. Now, brings us to what we're going to be looking at uh, this evening. What we're looking at this evening is what does, and I think I'm going to have to end this for a second because I think I'm in the, no, I'm in the right one. It's just not working right. Okay. Um, nope, sorry. Technology. All right, question five. What does, it was supposed to like be dramatic, like fade in or whatever, so it, it didn't work. What does the Bible teach us? So if, if the Bible's given by God, it's without any error, he used human authors to provide it, well then, what's the whole point of the Bible? Uh, what, what does the Bible teach us? And we, our answer here is answer five. I have answer four up there. Boy, this, this PowerPoint's a mess tonight. Um, what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us uh, what God wants to believe about him and how he wants us to behave before him. So the Bible essentially gives us two important things, belief and behavior. Now, where can we look in God's word that sort of provides this reality for us? And we find that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. So this is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, what's Ecclesiastes about? All right, Ecclesiastes is about life under the sun. All right, As we are here on planet Earth, as we live under the sun, uh, where do we find wisdom? How are we to conduct ourselves? Um, Ecclesiastes is, is a great book, and because the writer of Ecclesiastes points us to all the, the follies that we tend to fall into and the, and the, the traps that we tend to, to go after that truly cannot provide satisfaction. So he, and it's Solomon who's writing, and he talks about all the different things he tries in his life, and so he comes to the end of the book, and he's like, all right, I've, I've, I've set my mind to know folly, to know wisdom, to know everything that I can. And Solomon 
He was in a position to do this. He was the most prosperous king of Israel. He, the whole world looked to Israel as a superpower at this time. And he was at the very top. He was king. So what does he conclude after trying all these different things? He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Or believe in God and behave as God would have you to behave. Now, believe and behave. Those are the things we're going to talk about here. And once again, I like to hide the different things. Everything's up there. I'm just all out of sorts tonight. Um, believe and behave. The first thing we see is that life is empty and purposeless apart from the knowledge of God. That's the conclusion that Solomon comes to. That there is no hope, there is no purpose to life apart from the knowledge of God. All actions apart from knowing God, acting from a, from a place where we do not know him, we do not have a relationship with him, it's vanity, it's emptiness. Solomon uses a term in the Hebrew called chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? Right? You can't do it. It's not going to be successful. Um, and so that's what life is like if we're living it apart from the knowledge of God. Now, here's the thing. I think that to one extent people would say, okay, I can agree with that. You know, you talk to somebody on the street, okay, yeah, it's important that I know God. It's important that I know my creator. But here's the problem. How do most people feel like they can know God? What do you, what do you think? Give me, give, me, give me some of your thoughts. How, do, how does the typical person on the street feel like they know God? Okay. So God is like them. So, so they, they construct a God of their own imagination. All right. Um, Jimmy. All right, Jesus is my homeboy, which is a great example. He's, so maybe not exactly like me, but he's, he's somebody that I would like. He's somebody that would be a friend for me. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a popular way of viewing things. What else? He gets us, yes. In fact, that's, there's, right, right. So, so my knowledge of God, or God exists for me, rather than me existing for the glory of God. So yeah, that, that's definitely part of it. Um, what about feelings? People tend, I think, to act upon how they feel. And so they know God as they feel. Like I, and I've, I've actually... I've actually heard this terminology used more often than not now. Um, if you ask somebody, you know, who do you think God is? They won't say, I think. They would say, well, I feel he is like X, Y, or Z. Um, there, there comes sort of this uh, mystical idea about God. And like, well, well I, I know God because I had this, this, this sort of butterfly in the stomach moment. Or, or I had this epiphany. Or I had a dream. Um, and so the problem 
is that we, we understand that life is useless and meaningless apart from the knowledge of God. The pro- so let's say, that, let's say that everybody in the world agreed with that. And of course, not everybody in the world agrees with that statement. But let's, let's say everybody did. That's, there's still a problem. How do I know God? Where do I go to get information about him? And that brings us to the second point, that scripture is the only true source of knowledge of God. People tend to to think about God based on their conjecture, their supposition, or their feelings. So conjecture. Well, this is my best guess. Have any of you heard of the book or watched the movie called, or seen the movie or heard about the movie called The Shack? Anybody heard of that? All right. It's terrible. All right. Terrible way to approach understanding God because God is represented as three, three different types of people, but those people are, are images of humanity, images of us. So that essentially it's making God like us. And so, so what's interesting is you look at the world and, and you'll have a, a group of people that believe in God, but they believe in a God that is like the God in the shack. And they look to that as like that is the source of knowledge about who God is. It's sort of conjecture. And essentially the shack is a piece of fiction that some guy who claimed to be somehow related to Christianity said, well, this is how I think of God. Um, so there's conjecture or supposition. God is the God that I grew up with knowing who he was. Um, and this depends on the different backgrounds and, the, and the, different, uh, the different experiences that people have in life so that they presuppose a God who is like X, Y, or Z. Um, they may presuppose a God who, who stands up in the heavens and has this great uh, scale and seeks to judge people based on their good works, as long as they outweigh their bad works, then that's the God that exists in their mind. Um, there are those who view God as a, as a very happy and, and kind grandfather figure who is always handing out things and, and gifts and bestowing grace upon us, and that we can go to him and he'll give us what we want. There are people who view God as an entirely judgmental character who is waiting to to zap us, sort of like Zeus would zap, throw lightning bolts upon human beings if they stepped out of line. Um, so conjecture, supposition, and then I think the big thing that we have today is feelings. God is whoever we want him to be. Um, you know, we have, we have so much of modern day uh, feeling-based walking through this world that it is affecting the way people think about God. Now, Here's, here's the problem with going to another source for knowledge about God. Um, let's say that I believe that the God that exists is a grandfatherly figure who always does good things and always provides good things uh, for every human that's out there. Let's say that that's my, my supposition of who God is. Um, what's the problem? All right, Is that the God that exists? No. Um, that is not the God that exists. I have to understand God as he has revealed himself to us. 
And so scripture becomes the only true, and I'll add to true, we can put maybe in parentheses there, reliable source of knowledge about God. There is another source of knowledge about God. Right? What's the other place that we can go to know God? Creation, or what we call general revelation. But that is not, it, it's not sufficient to have a relationship with him or to truly know him. It tells us a few facts about him. Like, for instance, I know that um, like one of my favorite authors, one of the, my, growing up, even to this day, someone I love to read is C.S. Lewis. All right? Um, does anyone know what the S in C.S. Lewis stands for? Come on, you guys don't know what the S in C.S. Lewis stands for? It was Staples, all right? Not the company. That was his name, Clive Staples Lewis. And it's, so in my opinion, it's no wonder he went by C.S. Because who wants that name? Um, Clyde Staples Lewis was his name. And I know that fact about C.S. Lewis. But do I have a relationship with C.S. Lewis? No, I don't know him. And of course, he's, he's gone on into eternity many, many years ago. Uh, but I think sometimes people look at nature and they feel like, well, that's how I can know God. No, you, you can know facts about God, but you can't truly know him. It's not reliable to have knowledge about him. Now, what that brings us to the third point. Then scripture alone provides knowledge of God and direction for living in light of that knowledge. And now, here, here's something that Peter says that's sort of remarkable in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. All right. Now, to give you the context of what he's saying here in 2 Peter 1, Peter was privileged as part of what was often called the inner circle of disciples. And they would be people that would get to see certain other aspects of Jesus' ministry. And there's one particular event that they, that they were able to be witnesses of. Who knows what that event was? The transfiguration. And so Peter is describing that event earlier on in this passage. He's like, we were witnesses of the majestic glory. We heard the voice of God speaking from heaven. I mean, it was an absolutely incredible experience. And so, could you imagine what it would have been like to sit at Peter's feet and hear him describe seeing the glory of God? It would have been awesome. But notice what Peter points to as reliable. It is not his testimony of an ecstatic experience. What is it that is more fully confirmed than his own testimony of seeing Christ's glory? The prophetic Word, that which we are to do well to pay attention to as a light lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The word of God is more certain than any feeling or ecstatic experience that I may have had or any story that somebody else may have told me. This is why the word is written is written by inspiration, not given orally. There, there are lots of different religions in the world today. Many of those religions 
particularly Eastern religions and some Native American religions, they don't have texts. They have stories. Uh, they, have, they, have, they have legends that are passed down from one generation to the next. And they tell this story to each generation. Now, here, here's the problem with that. That's rife for mistakes, isn't it? You know, you've ever played that game Telephone where you tell somebody one thing and you go down the line and then you find out that the one thing that was said at the beginning is completely different than what somebody else... I mean, that happens. And so, so how can we have an assurity in a word that provides us knowledge of God? It's written down so that the, the actual writings of those that were inspired by God are able for us to examine today. It's important to note here what Peter says, that this prophetic word is a lamp shining in a dark place, which should tell us something about every other effort, every other way that we seek to know something about God. What does it tell us? It's darkness, not light. And so it's no wonder that as mankind pursues the knowledge of God through means apart from God's word, there's more and more darkness that's proliferated. We must pay attention to the word as a lamp shining in a dark place. And that is why scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, life is empty and purposeless apart from the knowledge of God. Scripture, then, is the only true source of knowledge of God. So, I must look to Scripture to provide, first of all, knowing God, and then, second of all, to find direction for living in light of that knowledge. Now, if you remember what our question and answer was, what does the Bible teach us? It teaches us what to believe, what God wants us to believe about him, and then how he wants us to behave before him. Why isn't that switched? Have you ever wondered about Because it isn't switched. Faith precedes action, right? And that is a constant theme in Scripture. Faith Perceives, perceives action. Why, why is that important? Well, one, the first thing influences the second thing. So think about it this way. If, if it is about behavior, if I'm supposed to figure out how I'm supposed to behave before God before I figure out what to believe about him, my behavior then is going to influence the God that I believe exists. So that essentially... If, my, if I try to live out a life and behave in such a way that God will accept me, eventually my concept of God, my belief about God is going to be such that I have a God who does accept the things that I am doing to please him. Um, this is why the, the, I think this is why the eternal you know, scales of justice, of goodness and evil, is so popular. Because it puts behavior over belief. It puts it, and it doesn't even put it necessarily over it, it just puts it in front of belief. So that if you were to ask somebody, well, well, okay, how does that work? Like, what is good behavior that's acceptable before God, and what is bad behavior 
Because if, if that's what you're basing your life on, shouldn't you know the good things you're supposed to be doing and the bad things you're not supposed to be doing? And sometimes people will connect that to the law, and they'll say, well, I'd say the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's great. You know what Jesus says about the Ten Commandments? And then we're, we're able to point them to the fact that the Ten Commandments are not given to show us what to do. The Ten Commandments are given to show us who God is so that belief comes before behavior. But if I have a right belief of who God is, if I'm able to understand his character, his nature, that's why Paul tells Timothy all scripture is profitable for the first thing is teaching or doctrine. And then that doctrine reproves us, that shows us the areas that we're wrong, that doctrine then corrects that areas in our lives, and then it trains us to live righteous lives. But it all has to begin with believing in the God who exists. And then, if I understand his character and nature, that will then shape the way I believe. Rather than having my, I'm sorry, I behave. Rather than having my behaviors be the thing that shapes the way I believe. So, this, this order is important, right? It has to be belief and then behavior, not behavior that gives rise to belief. Because ultimately, behavior is focused on who? Me. And if my behavior is focused on me, and that's what's forming my belief about God, I'm going to have a God of my own imagination. So, as we've been doing, we've been looking at, and this is actually working on the PowerPoint tonight. Let's look at what some of the catechisms say about this particular this point to sort of line up with this, the classic historical catechism. The first is the Westminster Catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? This is what the Westminster Catechism tells them. It tells us the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So I almost feel like the writers of the, of the catechism we're going through, it's almost like they took this right out of the Westminster Confession and sort of shined it up a little bit. All right, Belief and duty. Um, knowing who God is and then living before him. It also says in question six, what do the scriptures make known of God? And this is, I think, important to note. The scriptures make known what God is. So, again, if Scripture is the only source of knowledge of God, then does it matter what I think or who I think God is? Just, as, just the same if I were to say that the moon was made out of cheese. All right, you've heard that statement, the moon's made out of cheese. All right, now today, I don't think anybody believes the moon is made out of cheese. But if you go back, and I don't even know if 600 years ago people thought the moon was made out of cheese. But you look up there, and it's got the holes like Swiss cheese. All right? If I really believed the moon was made out of cheese, and I went around saying that, let's say I got up here Sunday morning, I have a great truth to teach you this morning. The moon is made out of cheese. What would you think of me? Huh? Where's the, yeah, <laughs> I've lost my cracker. Yeah, that's right, I'll stick to ham, right. Um, because I'm not, I'm not dealing in reality. I'm escaping into a reality that I'm creating. 
I'm not sticking to truth. I'm sticking to my own imagination. That's what so many people do with God. They don't know the God who truly exists. They know some figment of their own imagination. In fact, I, this may sound harsh, but I think it's true. I think many people's idea of God is the same thing as an invisible friend. Atheists will use that to, to point at those who believers and say, oh, you just have an imaginary friend. If I base my knowledge of God on the Bible, I do not have an imaginary friend. I have the God who exists. But if I conceive of God using any other source, the atheist is right. I do have an imaginary friend. And I think, I think that's important to keep in mind because what that brings us to is if we don't believe in the God that really exists, then do we believe in God at all? If he doesn't exist, then no. And this leads us down a path of practical atheism, where we will say, yes, I believe in God, but I believe in the God of my own imagination. So the scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, and then his decrees and the execution of his decrees, which some of those decrees deal with how he saves mankind, but also some of those decrees deal with how we are to live before him. The New City Catechism puts it this way. It's a little bit of a different spin, but I think they, they hit on the main issue. How can we glorify God? And the New City Catechism points out why are we made? We're made to, we exist to glorify God, to enjoy him, to love him, to live before him. So how do we do that? How do we fulfill what we've been made for? Well, we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and obeying his will, commands. We spent a lot of time talking about the first half of this, that the Bible teaches us what to believe about God. And I did that intentionally because I think that's the most important part. But it's also important for us to recognize then that we cannot then assume or live in our own suppositions about, well, this is how God wants me to live if it goes against what God's word says. I think I've told this story before, I remember in a job I worked in college, um, I was working with a, a lady who believed it was God's will for her. It was God's will for her to continue in an adulterous relationship with a man because he was her soulmate. Now, I also think she had some serious problems with her concept of who God was. But we cannot think that our lives can then be ordered any way, shape, or form, because, well, as long as I have my theology right, as long as I've got those answers right, well, then I can live however I want to. Jesus tells us, if you love me, what will you do? Keep my commandments. How are we to know other believers? We'll know them by their fruits. Now, that fruit is rooted in a belief of who God is, but if there's no fruit, then there is no root. And so the Bible teaches us what God wants us to believe about him and how he wants us to behave before him. So in other words, how to live life, not just the Christian life, but life, what we've been created for. And this is Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the end of the matter, all 
has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is given to us. Lord, you weren't required to reveal yourself to us in any way, shape, or form. And yet, Father, you spoke precisely, you spoke clearly, you spoke truthfully and without error in your word, showing us who you are and then showing us how to act in response to who you are. Father, may we resist the urge of the modern day in which we live to shape our concept of you from within ourselves, whether it be our our suppositions, whether it be the circumstances that we've grown up with, whether it be our conjecture or the feelings that we have, Lord. May we truly shape our knowledge of you based upon how you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And then, Lord, may we, knowing who you are, live in light of that as your word guides and directs us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this catechism that continues to remind us of the importance of your word. May we leave this place devoted to your truth as it's found in the scripture. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.